leadership team. Wasn't that amazing? Oh, feel free to stay if you want while I pray. Otherwise, yeah, have a seat. go have a seat. It's lovely to be here. It's the first time I've done the transition back from Eaglehawk back to here for quite a long time. And it's, um, it's a rush. <laughs> but first of all, before I start, I'm Donna. Lovely to be here. I'm part of the children's ministry team here at Juniton. So welcome to you online and welcome to you in the room. It's just fantastic to be here. That song has been going on my Spotify playlist on repeat for weeks. It is awesome, isn't it? It is such a good song. And it's a good segue into where we're up to this morning. For those of you who are playing at home and playing in the room and playing along, we are in week six of our series, Revolutionary Disciple. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. In the very first week, Pastor Dave Lovell helped us all get on the same page and face the same direction by defining the words revolutionary and disciple. Can anyone remember what he said? not a test. It's all right. I'll let you off. He said he defined revolutionary as, I'm going to use his words, involving or causing a complete or dramatic change. Does that ring any bells? Yes. And we used Matthew 4.19 to define what a disciple is and what a disciple looks like and what a disciple does. Does that ring any bells? Come on, nodding, just pretend, play along. Come on, people. <laughs> I'm not doing this on my own. You can join in too. Okay, Matthew 4:19. A revolutionary disciple or a disciple is someone that is, first of all, following Jesus. They've accepted the call to follow Jesus. They're being transformed by Jesus and they're on mission with Jesus. Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you, that's the transformation, fishers of men. Be on mission with him. Now, as we've worked through this series, we've used the book of Ephesians, and we haven't done it as an actual Bible study of the book. We've used it more as a framework to look at what a revolutionary disciple looks like in spheres of our lives. So we've used the way Paul structured the letter to look at the different areas of life and the relationships that exist in those areas. So we started with week two, looking at the front and centre abiding in Christ. It's the core of all that we do. Everything we are and who we are flows out of our abiding in Christ. And then we've looked at the other spheres over the last few weeks and talked about what it looks like to be a revolutionary disciple in each of those spheres. Are we getting some head nodding now? Great, we're all together. Now, we're up to the fifth sphere, but it's our last week. And the reason we've used the fifth sphere and we've put it over all of them is because it's something that exists over everything we do and who we are. It's the spiritual realm. Now, first of all, we have to... Except that the spiritual realm exists. You can't believe in Jesus and not believe that because he's a spirit and truth and he was, came in flesh, but he's also the Holy Spirit. And we believe that the spiritual realm exists over all of it. Now, the thing is that when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he takes it for granted that they all get that thought, but he structures his last few words really intentionally. He doesn't just mention the spiritual realm. He talks about the believers being in a spiritual battle. Everyone nodding? Now, he uses words that are very emphatic, warlike words. He talks about Roman armour and he uses imagery that helps the believers picture themselves as if they're in a war. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't tiptoe around it. He's really, really clear. They're in a battle. We are too. We're in a spiritual battle, fighting a spiritual enemy with spiritual weapons, but 
the victory's already been won. He's really clear. This war, because it sits over everything we do, is really important to think about. But without humility, we don't stand a chance. Have you thought about why we might have focused on pride as we've looked at all the areas of our lives and what we've talked about? A revolutionary disciple was somebody who was humbly walking with Christ in every sphere of life. Have you thought about why we might have thought about pride so much? No? Just taking it for granted, that's what we're talking about? We have talked about it so much because pride has the potential to take us out at every step of the way. It will trip us up if we're not aware of it. Go back and think about Matthew 4.19. If you're proud, you won't accept the call to follow Jesus. You won't believe you need him. If we're proud, we won't be transformed or be willing to be transformed by Jesus because we will believe that we're fine as we are. If we're proud, we won't lay down our own agenda and mission for life and submit to the Lordship of Christ and take up his agenda and his mission because we won't be willing to kick ourselves off the throne of our own lives. Pride will take us out at every step of the way and in every sphere of our lives if we aren't careful, unless we're humble. To be a disciple and to make disciples, we have to be humble. Without humility, discipleship doesn't work. Pride is the death of every relationship, including our relationship with God. James 4 verse 6 says, God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. Have you thought about that? If we're proud, God will oppose us. John 15 5, Jesus tells the believers, apart from me, you can do nothing of eternal value is what he's talking about. Our lives will count for nothing and God will oppose us unless we're willing to be humble. Humility is just as revolutionary now as it was when Paul was writing. It's just as countercultural and it's just as big a battle. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to open up and start in Ephesians 6. And it should be on the screen in a minute. So we're going to start in verse 10. I've borrowed this Bible because it's not my normal translation and I'm really struggling to find everything. <laughs> You'll have to bear with me as I fumble around. Okay, let's start in verse 10. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armour so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Them's fighting words. We are in a spiritual battle. As much as it's not fun to think about, as much as it doesn't give us all the nice feels, we have been born in the middle of a supernatural war. Everything God made that's good is under attack, including us. There's an unseen battle going on around us all the time. We can't see it with our physical eyes necessarily, but we can see it with our spiritual eyes sometimes. Sometimes we just have to trust that it's going on. There's this awesome story in 2 Kings chapter 6. I don't know if that's ringing any bells for people. 
The king of Aram is trying to attack the king of Israel. But the prophet Elisha is hearing from God. And every time the king of Aram sets up a battle plan, either an ambush or to take on a city or a town, the king of Israel knows about it and he's forewarned and forearmed. Now this becomes so specific and so annoying that the king of Aram is actually convinced he's got a spy in his midst. It feels like whatever he says behind closed doors is being repeated to the king of Israel. But it's not God's at work. Now finally, someone comes to the king of Aram and tells him what's going on. It's Elisha, the prophet. He's the one spilling the beans. So the king of Aram does what any good king would do. He gets up one morning and decides to attack and take Elisha out. Elisha and his servant get up that morning and open the door. And there surrounding him on the hills is the army of King Aram. Horses and chariots galore. And the servant, of course, is quite scared. But, the king, but Elisha says to him, don't be afraid. Those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And he prays, God, open his eyes that he might see. And the servant looks again. And what he sees this time is God's army. Not just flesh and blood horses and chariots. He sees horses and chariots of fire that far outnumber the king of Aram's army. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't you love sometimes to get a glimpse into that supernatural realm? Sometimes I think I would and then I think, no, I don't think I, I want to know. <laughs> but how cool is that? That battle is going on and we may not be aware of it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because we can't see it with our eyes doesn't mean it's not real. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays and asks us and asks that the believers will know something. And Paul mentions it also in Ephesians 6. He says, be strong in the Lord's mighty power. What power is that? Ephesians 1 tells us. I won't even open my Bible because then I won't have to find it. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honour at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. The next verse goes on to say, far above all rule and authority that's ever been created, far above any name that can be invoked, not only in this present age, but in the age to come. That's what Jesus has done, and that's where he sits, in complete victory. That's the power, Paul says, be strong in, stand firm in God's mighty power. If we were in this battle alone, we wouldn't have a chance. There'd be nothing left of us. We'd We'd be done. But we're not alone. God hasn't left us alone. He's given us his mighty power. His spirit indwells in us and we have access to the same power that raised Christ from the dead. We are, however, still fighting a spiritual enemy. In verses 11 and 12 of uh, Ephesians 6, Paul gives us a clue that we've been given armour to put on. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But first of all, I want to think about what he says about our enemy. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. And we can't necessarily see him. And we don't fight him with, spiritual, with normal weapons. We fight him with spiritual weapons. But our enemy is the devil. Now, all through scripture, the devil is mentioned in different ways. The devil comes from the, the title, the Satan or the ad adversary. I've popped some references and some links in the small group leader's notes. If you want to find out more about where he comes from, what he does, who he is, and the hierarchy of that spiritual realm, head there and look at that. 
I didn't want to dive into that today because I don't think we need to. I think we can keep it super simple today. Jesus acknowledged that he exists. Paul acknowledges that he exists. We need to acknowledge that he exists. But we also need to remember he's not God. He is a created being with limited power, limited knowledge and limited presence, and he's on a limited time frame. His time is running out. Our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Our God is omniscient. Um, I got this stuck at Eaglehog as well. Omniscient. Got it. <laughs> he is all-knowing, and our God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Satan is not. He is limited. And he knows his time is running out. He cannot create. He can only twist. Get it? He's not creative. He is not the creator. He is not equal power with God. But he fights dirty. That's what we need to get our heads around today. We've tended as believers to either fall in one camp or the other. We've tended in cultural Christian circles to either fall in the camp where we see a demon behind every bush and we attribute every bad thing that's ever happened, including stubbing your toe, to Satan. Or we tend to fall in the other camp and completely ignore him and pretend he doesn't exist. Both of them are unbalanced and both of them leave us vulnerable. Acknowledging what he isn't and the victory that we stand in leaves us in a far better position. But what does he do? How does he work? What are his strategies? In John chapter 8, verses 42 to 45-ish, Jesus talks to people. He talks to people that are opposing him and refusing to believe in him and in the works that he's doing. And he talks to them and he says, you are children of your father, the devil. He says that you love to do the things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, it's his native tongue. It's consistent with his character. And he is the liar and the father of all lies. He lies. Right from the start in the Garden of Eden, Satan lied. He caused doubt to creep in. He used deception. He took a truth that God spoke, but he twisted it. Did God really say? Does God really want your good? Is God really honourable and trustworthy? Anytime the devil lies to us, we will struggle if we believe him. During the week, I messaged my small group and said, what lies do you hear? Because I know what I hear, but what lies do you hear? And it was fascinating. We all seem to struggle with the same things. Have you ever heard, I am enough, I don't need anyone or anything? What about, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not clever enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not enough? What about, no one has it as tough as me? What about comparison? That's better than what I've got. What about I'll be happy when? Anyone heard that one? Yeah? What about, this is topical, they can have their truth and I can have mine, it'll be fine. Truth's relative, isn't it? No? What about what I watch or listen to doesn't affect me? What about a little bit is okay? A little bit won't hurt. It's not doing anyone any harm. 
Now, you are obviously way holier than I am. <laughs> I'm not even getting a nod. You guys obviously don't hear any of these. What about, I'm too busy for time with God right now? Yeah? What about, I don't need to serve. They don't need what I've got. It's not important. It's only a little bit. Yeah? No, maybe not. The devil will lie to us. Whether you can see yourselves or hear these lies today, I'm sure there's something that you've been fed that you've swallowed hook, line and sinker. He will lie to us about our identity, about our value and our efforts, how to use our time and our resources, anything he can to cause us to be distracted or to doubt God's goodness or to create division or discouragement. Even just being so busy that we haven't got time to think. Satan's arrows and his attacks are mostly in the form of thought. He takes God's words even and gives them a twist. And then he deals us a big dose of condemnation and shame. Each one of these lies feeds our pride or a false humility, which is the exact same thing in a different look, but it looks different. Every sphere of our lives is under attack, especially our abiding. Each lie is a strategy to separate us from God and from each other. Have you ever seen the TV show called Would I Lie to You? Okay, I'm getting a few nods. Come on, guys, play along. <laughs> it's not passive today. Join in. Okay, if you haven't seen the game, uh, the game show Would I Lie to You, it comes from a game that I played way back in the day as a youth group icebreaker called Two Truths, One Lie. Yes? Okay, if you don't know, this is how it goes. Somebody, normally a willing volunteer or a victim, will get put in the hot seat and told to come up with three statements. Two of them are true and one of them is a lie. And the group needs to build consensus about which one is uh, the lie and which two are the truths. You want to play? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Okay, I'm going to tell you three things. And you need to think about them and decide which one's the lie, and then we'll swing back to it in just a minute, and I'll tell you which one it was, okay? The first one. As a child, I had a huge fear of heights. Knee-knocking, fist-clenching, teeth-chattering, hold-the-wall fear of heights. Okay, that's the first one, fear of heights. The second one. As a Year 10 student, I took the subject outdoor ed, and I abseiled down the outside of a concrete water tower from 15 metres high in the air. Okay, that's number two, abseiling. Number three, as a really little tacker, I had a rocking horse that I named Black Beauty. Okay, got it? Yeah, fear, abseiling, rocking horse, Black Beauty. Got it? Awesome. Okay, let's move on. We're going to talk about what our spiritual weapons are. So pick up your Bibles if you've got them or look to the screen. We're going to head back to Ephesians if I can find it. I should have left it open, shouldn't I? Oh, there it is. Okay. Verse 13. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armour so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armour of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
we've got weapons. Some are for attack and some are for defense. We aren't going to look at each one of them today because we don't have time. Pastor Trina did a great job covering them last year. I'm going to look to her last year. Yes, it was last year. It feels like forever ago, but it was just last year. If you want to have a look at them more deeply, I'd highly recommend it. If you've never done a study on this passage, it's really, really valuable. The imagery is so rich and so applicable. But rather today, I want to come at it with broad brushstrokes. I want to have a look at God's word, at word as truth for our belt, that's the foundation piece, and as our sword, that's truth. And I want to have a look at our shield of faith as our first line of defense. Okay? What I really hope you notice is that both of these require humility. Otherwise, they're not effective. So the first one is truth as our weapon. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul also tells us, let's see if I can, I'll put a little bookmark. Yes, I can find it. Chapter 10, verse 3. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Did you hear that? We don't wage war as humans do. Even though we put on armour, it's not physical armour, it's spiritual armour. It's God's weapons and God's defence. But what are we actually doing with it? We're tearing down arguments, human reasoning and false thoughts, proud ideas that hold themselves up against the knowledge of God. Lies. We're tearing down lies with God's truth. Just before Jesus described what the devil was like in John chapter 8, he spoke to the people who did believe him a few verses earlier. And he said, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yeah, I hear Good on you. The truth will set you free. That's what we're fighting with and that's what we're fighting for, God's truth. But... Before we can accept Christ's truth, we need to be willing to lay down or admit that we might have false thoughts or a human reasoning or false arguments or proud ideas that will hold themselves up against the knowledge of God. We need to accept that we will and we need to be humble enough to lay them down. How will we hear God's truth? In his word, in prayer, spending time with him, abiding. It will come out of our abiding. Before we can accept Christ's truth, we have to be willing to spend time with him to hear his voice. We need to know him. As we abide in him, we'll become like sheep who know their shepherd's voice and will only follow their shepherd and no one else. A stranger could stand outside the gate all day and call. Sheep aren't coming out. If we lay down our own ideas and we're willing to take up God's, we will know what's true. Okay, swing back with me. Two truths, one lie. Who wants to guess? Okay, first one. I want hands up. Oh, here to one. Okay. If you think one was the lie, put your hand up. Okay. It's good odds. If you think two was the lie, put your hand up. Mm, not many takers on two. You don't think I'm brave. Number three. Did I have a rocking horse and was it named Black Beauty? Anyone want to? Okay, that's the lie. You think that's the lie? Ooh. You think I'm lying. Well, guess what? I tricked you. None of them are lies. Well, they were kind of. The first two are absolutely true. Take it to the bank, true. The last one, the third one, I did have a rocking horse, but it wasn't called Black Beauty. 
<laughs> she got it. I named it Darkla. It's a made-up name like little children do. But unless you knew me well, you would not have known that. You could have laid odds on which ones were true, but the fact that the first two seemed to contradict them, each other was tricky. God's truth sometimes appears to contradict itself. Sometimes we come across a paradox. How can God be love and just? How can there be a heaven and then a loving God send people to hell? Unless we're willing to embrace the entirety of God's truth and take it for what it is and trust it, we are vulnerable to believing a lie. The last one that was true, I did have a rocking horse, but it was, that wasn't its name. It's such a little twist. So easy to get tripped up unless we know all of God's truth. We will be less vulnerable. Okay, let's move on to the shield of faith. It's given to us to stop the arrows even making contact. But embedded in the thought of that shield is a sense of community, teamwork, people being in the battle together. Without humility and, with, and on our own, it's pretty much ineffective. It will only protect one side of us. Can I get that slide up now, please? The Roman shield. There you go. That will help. So now I'm pretty sure Trina mentioned last year that they're timber built, covered in layers of canvas, often soaked in water and paraffin. They were ultra resistant to fiery arrows. And those guys moved as one. Anyone out of step and someone fell down and they all went down. Only as they were willing to be together did they have enough shields to cover all the sides and the top of them. But one person with one shield was still very vulnerable. Paul is intending that when he speaks about a shield of faith that we will be working together to be a team, to be impenetrable. The lies we believe about each other, the hurts we experience, the offences we've refused to forgive, they can all be used to isolate us and keep us vulnerable. Every sphere we move in involves people and the opportunities for hurt are immense, even in the church. I don't know about you, but I've been hurt in church more than I've been hurt anywhere else. But we have to be in it together. The book of Ephesians was written, one of the goals, Paul's stated goal, is to show us that Jesus' life, death and resurrection achieved a relational wholeness between people that reflects the triune unity of the Godhead. Our unity, our sense of putting others first, our living humbly beside each other, preferring each other's needs, mutual submission reflects who God is and how he loves us. No wonder Satan wants to rip it apart. No wonder he wants to take this out from under us and leave us so vulnerable. But walking closely with other disciples also protects us in a different way. If you're hearing a lie, but you've got a community of people around you that are speaking truth in love, you've got a way better chance of recognising that as a lie. Without authentic, vulnerable relationships where we're willing to confess and share with each other what we're struggling with, we're really, really vulnerable. Pride will keep us out of these relationships. First of all, you might say, it's just Jesus and me. I don't need anyone else. That's a lie. Second lie might be, my sin's too shameful. I can't share what my struggles are. Nobody else will understand. That's a lie. What about, 
I don't want to look, risk looking foolish and losing faith. Face. I couldn't share that. Or I don't know enough to contribute, so I don't want to go. Or I haven't got time. When X, Y, Z happens, then I'll go. Pride will keep us isolated. But let's move on. What does victory look like? Let's head back to Ephesians 6, and we'll do those last few verses. Sorry, I've got to find it again. Okay. And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I am in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. Victory does not look like what we think it will. It's not a lack of fiery arrows. It's not having everyone like us. It's not good, good health or a successful job or even physical freedom. Jesus Christ won the victory for us on the cross. I'm going to see if I can find Colossians 2, but if you can beat me there, go for it and read it yourselves. Okay, can do. Okay, got it. Starting in verse 13. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. When Paul's telling us to stand in the victory, it's not our victory, it's Christ's victory. That's what we're standing in. That's the victory we live in. We stand in his victory. Our humble dependence on him, our obedience to him, our commitment to Christ in every sphere of our lives, expressed in vulnerable relationships, reflecting the unity of the Godhead, our humble submission to one another, reveals only the work Christ can do. That's his victory. We are strong in his mighty power. That's our victory. Standing firm against an attack together, that's our victory. Living as a humble, revolutionary disciple in every sphere of our lives, as countercultural as it is, that's our victory. That's what we're called to stand in. Now, it might sound over-simple. I've made it simple on purpose because it is simple. Not easy, but simple. We sometimes make this so complicated. We tie ourselves up in knots. It doesn't need to be. Abiding with Christ will flow into every area of our lives. Our humble dependence on him will reflect him to the world. We can stand firm in his victory. But how will we know? What will give us the clue that we're standing firm in his victory? I think we'll hear it in our prayers. Paul was praying at the end of that chapter while he's sitting in a jail cell. He wasn't praying for more blankets, better rations, even physical freedom. He was praying that Christ's mission would advance, that he would be given a boldness and courage to speak the gospel to whoever had come past. He had the ability to change his perception and see it the way God did. He didn't see himself as chained up, 
and not being able to confine, to not being able to spread the gospel. He saw himself as chained up and chained to a Roman soldier who was his captive audience. He wasn't the captive, the soldier was. He got to preach to him for his whole shift and then a new one would come along. Wherever you are, whatever you think you're under attack in, there's opportunity there to stand in Christ's victory and to speak truth, to live in humility that's so obvious because it's so countercultural. We'll know victory when we hear it in our prayers. That prayer reveals what's in our hearts. There's no way we can pray for God's will to be done in us unless we're willing to lay aside our will. We need to acknowledge him before we can even ask for help. We need to acknowledge that his strength is what we need in our weakness. The inferiority of our wills and our agendas gets pushed aside for the better option of following him. It will be a humble disciple who admits their weaknesses and asks for prayer. It will be a humble disciple who gives up their time to pray for a fellow believer. As we wrap up, in conclusion, this whole series... I want to be a humble disciple. I want to be revolutionary. And it doesn't take much. Small, still, quiet steps along the way will get us there together. But we need to remember, Satan is a lying schemer. He is our adversary, but he has not won. His power is limited. And we've been given the victory to stand in, but it's not ours. He will lie to us. He will appeal to our pride and we will be so vulnerable to believe him if we are not embedded in Christ's truth and authentic community. Unless we're willing to accept our own weakness, we can't accept his strength and we'll only receive that as we abide. It takes humility to accept someone else's power, to acknowledge that the victory is his and not ours, that we can't do it on our own. Pastor Trina mentioned two-year-olds a couple of weeks ago and she said, the, has anyone heard, I do it myself? And we all went, yes, we've heard that. That's great when you're two and trying to feed yourself. Terrible when you're trying to do spiritual warfare. Absolutely shocking. Not helpful. We need to be in it together. A revolutionary disciple is someone who is humbly following Christ submitted to him, being transformed by him and on his mission. In every sphere of our lives, you can't be winning in one and losing in another and still think you're winning. This spiritual battle sits over every sphere. So I'm going to leave you with some questions. Lunchtime discussion, car ride home, small group. Let's keep this in our minds. Which sphere is hardest for you right now? Where are you under attack? Where are you struggling with discouragement or doubt? Where are you believing those lies? Is it in home life? Is it in your work life? Is it in church? Is it in your abiding relationship with Christ? Where are you really struggling? What lies have you been believing? I don't know if anything that I've said this morning resonates with you. You might be having your own struggle that I haven't mentioned. Can you identify it as a lie? Who can you share your struggles with and have them pray for you? Now, if you can't answer this one, you're in trouble. 
You need to find a friend, buddy. Who? Who has got your back? Who's helping you hold up your shield? Who's praying for you, speaking truth to you? And the last one, who are you doing it for? Yeah, who are you doing it for? Who are you praying for? I want to leave you with one final thought. There's a promise here. James 4 verse 7. So humble yourselves before God. That's our bit. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a good promise. Humble yourselves. I don't know about you, but I don't want God to oppose me. I don't want everything I do to count for nothing. Humble yourselves. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Everything we do, including our spiritual warfare, comes out of our abiding. We need to be in it together. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you. Jesus, we praise you that you died on the cross, that you disarmed those powers, that you made a public spectacle of them in your victory. Thank you for nailing our sin to the cross. Thank you for leaving us with your weapons of truth and our shields of faith. Father, we love you, but we cannot do this on our own. In humility, we ask you to help us. Keep us united. Keep us strong, standing firm in your mighty power. Lord, remind us again today that the victory is yours. We can rest in it. Jesus prayed in John 17, 7. Sanctify them by truth. Your word, Father, is truth. Lord, we also pray, set us apart, sanctify us, set us apart to do your will in your truth. Father, we acknowledge your words are true. Father, help us to love each other so well that the world notices. Help us by living in mutual submission, honouring and preferring one another's needs greater than our own. Father, may we just use Jesus as our model. May this just be so obvious to the world that is watching. May our unity as a congregation, as a body of believers, may it be so obvious. Jesus, give us what we need today so that your will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, open our spiritual eyes. And Jesus, we pray all these things because in your mighty name we have victory. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen.